Good morning and welcome to episode two of a three-part investigative series into the rare and devastating disease, Tay-Sachs disease. I'm here remotely connecting with my team, Aliyah Sapita and Alyssa Matos, as we're glad you chose to spend some time with us on this month's episode of Fast Facts on Tay-Sachs. In episode one, we took a look into the science of Tay-Sachs disease, how it affects the patient on a cellular level, briefly discussed the traditional and more cutting-edge treatments available, and had a short segment into what a NICU nurse may encounter in the rare chance they come across a Tay-Sachs patient. This week, we'll start our program with a short look at how Tay-Sachs was discovered and how the Ashkenazi Jewish population has aided in the group research efforts for an effective treatment and cure for Tay-Sachs. We will then take a deeper dive into the treatment options available that are currently being researched, such as substrate reduction therapy, enzyme replacement therapy, bone marrow transplantation, and briefly introduce different gene therapies that are changing the landscape of possible outcomes for these poor children. From there, Alyssa will discuss how Tay-Sachs relates to our current unit of skin and bones and our next unit of joints and muscles. For those listening from our A&P class, the connections will be quite clear. And for our general audience, no hard feelings if you want to fast forward through this section. Now, now, team, I'm hoping to go off script here a bit. And if you don't mind, because uh, we have some exciting things in the works for episode three. You promised you wouldn't tease this and you're not even done with the intro. I know, I know, but I get excited about these things. Okay, go ahead then. Okay, now listeners, no promises here, as we are lowly amateur podcasters, but we reached out to MGH and the department leading their stem cell research into Tay-Sachs disease, and are hoping to have a guest appearance, or at the very least, an email snippet on the ongoings of that groundbreaking study. It's really exciting stuff, but there are a lot of moving parts right now, and hopefully a representative from their team can get back to us. It would be a huge get for us as we continue to discuss the importance of stem cell research in curing Tay-Sachs disease. And that's where we were before your tangent. Today's podcast, the one we're recording now, Yes, sorry. So today, after the dive into how Tay-Sachs relates to our current units, we will finish this podcast as we finish all podcasts on Fast Facts on Tay-Sachs with a look into how Tay-Sachs will play a part in my future career as a pediatric nurse. Now, before we start, Fast Facts on Tay-Sachs is an investigative look into Tay-Sachs disease, a rare neurogenitive disease disorder that is ultimately fatal. As such, while we'd love to keep this podcast entertaining and light, due to the harsh realities of this disease, this discussion can be quite grim and somber. So don't say we didn't warn you. For those of you still intrigued, it is our honor to present episode two of Fast Facts on Tay-Sachs. In 1881, British ophthalmologist Warren Tay made an unusual observation. He reported a cherry red spot on the retina of a one-year-old patient, a patient who was also showing signs of progressive degeneration of the central nervous system as manifested in the child's physical and mental retardation. This cherry red spot, which you may have seen in our podcast cover art, is a characteristic that would eventually come to be associated with metabolic neurological disorders like Sandhoff, GM1, Neampic, and in recognition of Warren Tay, Tay-Sachs disease. Tay shares the disease's title with New York neurologist Bernard Sachs, who described the cellular changes present in the disease as well as its potential for heritability. Shortly after Tay's observation, Sachs also noted the higher occurrence of the disease in Jews of Eastern and Central European descent, as well as a typical pattern of the disease, including early blindness, severe retardation, and death in early childhood. Alyssa, you just made an interesting point that I feel needs to be delved into a little more closely. The Ashkenazi Jewish population has had a profound impact on the number of genetic disorders due to their almost century-old track record of cooperating with genetic studies. In fact, much of the awareness of the Ashkenazi Jewish population as an ethnic group stems from their expansive cooperation in genetic studies throughout the years. The Ashkenazi Jewish population has been studied far more thoroughly than other populations, 
because they are a sizable population group with over 5 million people just in America alone, but they also exhibit a high degree of endogamy. Endogamy, as in layman terms, is the custom of marrying only within limits of a local community, in this case, other Ashkenazi Jewish people. Further, and maybe more important, is that these Ashkenazi Jewish com communities are comparatively well-informed about genetics research and have been supportive of community efforts to study and prevent genetic disease. These efforts were highlighted last episode when discussing the Doryor Shoram, an organization that provides screening programs for genes that cause related diseases and other preventative measures practiced by Ashkenazi Jewish population. The availability of newer treatment options today, such as gene therapy, are only possible due to their cooperation and progressive thinking early on in the disease's research. Wow, that's really interesting, considering Tay-Sachs was linked to the Ashkenazis during a time where there was a severe lack of med medical knowledge in a cultural climate that very well could have shunned and denigrated them for being linked to a newly discovered fatal disease. Really amazing. Now, Chris, you finished mentioning some of these newer treatments, and I know you promised the listeners, against the advice of your team, I should add, that next month we'd go and go in depth into stem cell treatment being done by Mass General Hospital but I was hoping you could touch on some recent findings that seem positive for those children suffering from Tay-Sachs. Sure, but I think we should categorize these findings as hopeful rather than positive. A good number of them have limited treatment outcomes or are too early to tell if they will provide support for children suffering from Tay-Sachs. The two older form of treatments, older in that they were pioneered in the 90s, are substrate reduction therapy and bone marrow transplantation. As we know from our discussion in our previous podcast, Tay-Sachs is a lysosomal storage disorder. In a metabolic or genetic pathway, enzymes catalyze a series of reactions. Each enzyme is regulated or mediated by one gene through its RNA and protein products. At each phase in this pathway, enzyme activity catalyzes a reaction in which a precursor molecule, the substrate, transformed into, the next immediate, into its next intermediate state. Failure of the metabolic pathway leads to accumulation of the substrate with possible harmful effects. Substrate reduction therapy addresses this failure by reducing the level of the substrate to a point where residual de degradative activity is sufficient to prevent substrate accumulation. In mice, this process is sh shown to prevent the GM2 ganglioside accumulation, yet during clinical trials, it did not stop neurologic dysfunction progression. Bone marrow transplantation has also been studied extensively as a treatment for years and is a procedure to replace damaged or destroyed marrow with healthy bone marrow stem cells, blood-forming stem cells. While they have not undergone large animal studies, in mice, bone marrow transplants have shown an increase from four and a half to eight month survival rate and an improvement on neurological manifestations. Nevertheless, during clinical trials throughout the 2000s and as recent as 2017, these trials did show a HEX-A activity increase However, neurologic dysfunction progression was not stopped. Wow, so are scientists no closer to a cure? Well, while substrate reduction therapy and bone marrow transplants have been disappointing regarding treatment effect, newer therapies such as enzyme replacement therapy and stem cell therapy have shown signs of hope of figuring out this devastating disease. We'll take a closer look at stem cell therapy next month, but I was hoping you'd take the mic and explain to our listeners what enzyme therapy is and how it may be able to treat Tay-Sachs disease. Sure thing. Enzyme replacement therapy, or ERT for short. Maybe the simplest of all, the therapies conceptually, at least. At its simplest form, if the body has low levels of some enzymes, ERT therapy says, let's produce some and inject them into the body. Enzyme replacement therapy. In Tay-Sachs disease case, 
provides the missing or deficient enzyme, which from last month we all know is HEX-A, through regular IV infusions. Since the cells are adept at picking up enzymes from outside, outside the body and absorbing them, it seems like it should work. This therapy has been very effective with some lysosomal storage diseases, Gaucher disease, Fabry disease, or M1, MP1, but not with the diseases that involve enzymes needed in the brain, such as Tay-Sachs. Scientists believe the blood-brain barrier, the foreign object response of the white blood cells, and the quality of enzymes needed are all factors in why enzyme replacement therapy has been largely ineffective with Tay-Sachs disease. Additionally, some ERT treatments only impact symptoms temporarily as the injected enzymes will eventually die off, which is a massive problem for applications as invasive or as direct brain injections. With a therapy like ERT, we need to put in as many en enzymes as we, can, as we need, and the processes may need to be repeated several times. Approved ERT therapies are currently only effective treating the non-neurological symptoms of diseases. Efforts to bypass the blood-brain barrier by injecting the enzyme directly into the spinal cord, known as in intracranial delivery, are promising in animal models and just starting in human clinical trials of MPS type 1. In addition, there is an ERT clinical trial for late infantile batten disease that is being administered directly into the brain. However, in regards to specifically Tay-Sachs disease, enzyme replacement therapy has shown to improve motor function and increase survival rate in mice. However, no large animal models or clinical trials are currently reported, but there is a general hope in the scientific community for the effectiveness of ERT. I know that's a lot of information to take in, so we're going to leave our discussion for gene therapy and stem cell therapy for next month. I always get on these long-winded science diatribites. Yes, Chris, I stole your air quotes from last episode for science-y. So I'll let Chris explain to our listeners, particularly, particularly our fellow students in AMP1, how Tay-Sachs connects to what we are currently learning. Thanks, Alyssa. You didn't even pat yourself on the back for such a great industry standard cliffhanger as I usually do, but I'm really looking forward to our discussion on gene and stem cell therapy. Well, I try to keep it professional instead of letting the listeners know how good we are getting at podcasting. I'm looking forward to next month as, we will, as well as how nice it'll be to finish the podcast series with some hopeful and promising news. There are some major developments occurring and these two therapies deserve more than just a short segment. I definitely agree. Some positivity is needed around here. Before we connect Tay-Sachs to our current unit, however, I'd like to hop in here and give some general background knowledge that should help our non-AMP listeners follow along. Let's rewind and take a quick look at what we learned in this month's section about the skeletal system. The skeletal system is the framework of the body, consisting of bones and other connective tissues, which protects and supports the body tissues as well as the body's organs. There are five main functions that make up this system, which includes storing minerals, producing blood cells, protecting organs, and providing support and movement. Bones are also extremely important to our body. Not only do they maintain our body position and carry out efficient movements that allow humans to sit, stand, and walk, but bones also provide the storage of minerals and energy and protect vulnerable organs and blood cells. Thank you, Chris. Now that we briefly reviewed what we learned in this unit, let's talk about how Tay-Sachs directly affects the skeletal system. As we previously mentioned, one of the main functions of the skeletal system is providing support and movement. And Tay-Sachs disease is is a disease that directly affects these two functions. 
Symptoms of Tay-Sachs commonly develops as early as three to six months of age, where the child begins to have muscle weakness, low muscle tone, an increased startle response, and sudden contractions of large muscles when falling asleep. These contractions are also known as myoclonic jerks. Myoclonic jerks are brief, involuntary twitching of a muscle or group of muscles that generally occurs while falling asleep. Now, I heard you mention that low muscle tone is one of the symptoms that come with the disease. That must affect movement and mo mobility of the child greatly, no? I'm glad you brought that up. Yes, having abnormally low muscle tone has the ability to get pretty severe. But before we go more in depth, let me first explain what muscle tone is as it relates to our next unit. Muscle tone is one contributing factor to our ability to hold our bodies upright, to move with control, and our stamina when completing activities. And low muscle tone is the amount of tension or resistance to movement in a muscle. Low muscle tone occurs when the length of the resting muscle is slightly longer than usual. This means that the muscle fibers are not overlapping at an optimal level, and there are fewer points where the fibers can attach and generate pull on the muscle, resulting in the use of more energy because the muscles go through a greater range of motion. The use of extra energy contributes to the decrease in the child's endurance. This symptom may be pretty bearing on both the child and the parents, and will require physical therapy. In the next episode, we will go more in depth in the importance of muscle tone in our bodies. That sounds like it would be pretty devastating on both the child and the parents. I'm glad we can talk to you more about this topic in our next episode because of its severity and its importance to the movement of our bodies. I've given away way too many spoilers already this episode, so let's continue on to the next set of symptoms caused by Tay-Sachs. As a child ages, the symptoms become increasingly worse. Between 6 to 10 months of age, the child will not meet motor milestones as well as possibly losing the ability to perform previously learned tasks such as sitting. In between 8 to 10 months, the child will begin to grow less responsive as well as move less. Vision may be lost and seizures will be fairly common by one years old. And at age two, it is common for the child to have trouble swallowing and progress into an unresponsive vegetative state. A vegetative state is where a person has a functioning brainstem but no consciousness or cognitive function. That's incredibly sad, but it's also kind of interesting. People in a vegetative state they can interact with others like by blinking to communicate, right? Not quite. I've seen this acted out in movies and TV shows before, but it isn't exactly medically correct. A vegetative state occurs when the cerebrum, the part of the brain that controls thought and behavior, no longer functions. But the hypothalamus and brainstems, the parts of the brain that control vital functions, continue to function. This means that they can regulate breathing, open their eyes, have basic reflexes, control sleep cycles, and breathing but they are not able to respond to voices or verbal commands, speak or communicate through blinking, interact with their surroundings, or move with purpose. They have no awareness of themselves or their environment. Well, I'm glad that you were able to clear that up for me. Makes me remember that everything is not always true in TV shows and movies, especially concerning medical problems. It seems like Grey's Anatomy has lied to me. Some say space is the final frontier, but I believe discovering the intricacies of the brain is equally if not more important for the future of our species. But anyways, I'm getting a tad sci-fi-y here, and let's get back on track. Now, everything we have discussed in this episode is all essential for the development of the child. And as a parent to a child with this disease, it may be extremely hard to not see the development happening in their child. Now, as I'm working towards being a pediatric nurse, let's look at how a pediatric nurse may handle a child diagnosed with this disease. Pediatric nurses are very important people who give primary care services such as diagnosing and treating most common childhood illnesses and developmental screenings. In some cases, however, the illness of the child is not so common, such as Tay-Sachs disease. 
When a pediatrician is concerned about the lack of development in almost all areas of a child, they might recommend that the parents bring the child to a pediatric neurologist or an ophthalmologist for nervous system and eye exams. For children with Tay-Sachs, it is hard to confirm if they have it or not without them getting a blood test. Some doctors also might look for a cherry red spot on the retina. Once it has been confirmed that the child has Tay-Sachs disease, it can be very difficult for parents to cope with this because there is no known cure. However, there are many treatment options for the child to be most comfortable during this time, in which a pediatric nurse would oversee. The first would be medication to reduce a child's symptoms, such as anti-seizure medications. Children who have Tay-Sachs disease are at high risk of lung infections that cause breathing problems and frequently accumulate mucus in their lungs. Therefore, a child may need chest physiotherapy to help remove mucus from the lungs, which a pediatric nurse would help administer. Some children may also have trouble swallowing or develop respiratory problems by inhaling food or liquid into the lungs while eating. To prevent those problems, the doctor may recommend an assistive feeding tube, such as a gastrostomy tube, which is inserted through the child's nose and goes into the child's stomach. Another option could be a doctor trained in stomach surgery who may surgically insert a feeding tube. In both these cases, pediatric nurses would be on the front line of care to ensure that the feeding tube is clean and working properly. As the disease progresses, children may benefit from physical therapy to help keep joints flexible and man maintain as much ability to move or to have as much range of motion as possible. Physical therapy can delay joint stiffness and reduce or delay the loss of function and pain that can result from shortened muscles. These are all very real and common outcomes for children with Tay-Sachs. And while the disease itself is exceedingly rare, so many pediatric nurses may never encounter Tay-Sachs patients. If they do, they will be involved in all aspects of care, from physiotherapy to med dispension, and even being the eyes and ears for potential feeding tube complications. Wow, I can't imagine being those parents. It must be really tough on all involved, including the dedicated nurses working on the case. Now, I think we've talked about enough information for my brain to process for a week, so let's start wrapping everything up. The next unit is all about mobility which is something that is greatly affected by Tay-Sachs disease. One of the main symptoms is the loss of mobility. Sometimes this loss may be so severe it could lead to paralysis. Most commonly in an infant with this disease will begin showing signs of their loss of motor skills at about six months of age. This includes turning over, crawling, and losing the ability to, of sitting up. Poor mobility may be caused by a combination of muscle weakness, spasticity of muscles, and or coordination problems. I'm getting a little ahead of myself here and a little carried away with the enthusiasm for the, for the topic. Next month, we'll get into details on how Tay-Sachs relates to our movement unit. On, on, we'll look, look into gene and stem cell therapy. And as well, we'll have some twists or surprises to finish fast facts with Tay-Sachs with a bang. Well, that's all we have for you this week. We'd like to thank you for giving us some of your time to learn about Tay-Sachs. And until next time, be good to each other and please, for the love of God, wear a damn mask.